You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. I always hoped when I came out here it would be to play a grand piano. Uh, (laughs) However, this isn't a bad second gig. You know the point at the birthday party where the small person has had too many presents and too much lemonade and cake and far too much attention and suddenly they burst into tears and have to be taken off and put to bed. Um, This has not yet happened to Seamus Heaney. (laughs) And he may even manage to continue giving the impression that he's enjoying his birthday just as much as, as we are. And I'm not going to hold up your enjoyment of him for very long. I just want to say a few words about living in the same time as Seamus Heaney. And to start with two memories, and they're both related to this this great hall, which I love so much and have had so much pleasure in over the years. 40 years ago in 1969, somewhere over there where you're sitting in seats G and H, 31, maybe 30 and 31, the Breton harpist Alan Stivell was playing in a concert, and it was part and parcel of the Gentle Revolution. Um, oh yes, I was part of that. And we were sitting on the floor, you didn't have any seats at that time, taking a rest from speeches and, and marches and, and meetings. And conscious of the fact that Ireland was changing, that Northern Ireland was about to erupt, though we didn't quite know how, that we were part of this big change and that this was our time, the beginning of our time. And decades later, I sat down probably in the same seats there while Gerhard Marx, and I think it was he, uh, just before the symphony orchestra began to play a very difficult modern piece, he pleaded with us to be open to it and to give it our, our full attention because he said, this music comes out of your time. It was made by someone who lived through the same history, probably went to the same sort of schools, breathed the same air as you do. You have a special relationship with the music that is made in and is of your time. Seamus Heaney has written the music of my time. It's poetry that I've always felt part of. It's composed out of a life that I know um, from whatever you say, say nothing, when I was covering Northern Ireland in the mid-70s for RTE, to the most recent in the attic, when I too now find that I am more and more uncertain on the stairs. And looking back over the years, it's surprising to remember how often Seamus was simply there when journalists or writers would gather at the end of a big political day, there he was, just quietly part of the conversation, coming into the House of Commons in London with a gang of us in the early 70s, curious, because there was a big debate on Northern Ireland, I think it was the Prevention of Terrorism Act in 74, but also because the Press Gallery Bar was one of the few places in London where you could get a drink between 3.30 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Sitting in the Wellington Park Hotel bar in 1976, and I have memories that don't always have to do with bars, in the middle of a gang of journalists and BBC producers and poets and musicians and Davy Hammond, who was all of those things, all arguing about the dire political situation and Seamus listening 
and Kieran McMahon sending Dolly up to the bar and me saying, you haven't a chance, they're really strict in here and they closed 15 minutes ago. And Seamus just smiling and cocking an eyebrow towards the bar from which Dolly McMahon was returning, followed closely by two adoring barmen and two very large trays of drinks. Seamus, whenever you bumped into him, was always interested in what was happening politically, what sort of people were in power, what motivated them, and what you might have said yourself in a television or a radio piece. And as a journalist, it was wonderful for us to come across a great poet, and we knew even then he was a great poet, who thought that what we did was important. We were conscious all the time of somebody who reads all the papers, who keeps up with the current affairs debates, who's as interested in news as any journalist, maybe because he feels the need constantly to know the context in which he's writing. And we quickly realized that that attic in Sandy Mount was no ivory tower. In recent years, the perambulating Seamus that we knew has been more constrained by the limits that are imposed by fame. But at anything to do with poetry, he's there quietly lending his weight and his reputations to events that involve younger poets and younger writers. And at a Poetry Ireland festival in, in Dunleary, I remember a distinguished North American poet fixed the Nobel laureate with her beady eye, and she said, astonished, I know why I'm here. I have to read. But what on earth are you doing here? And it had to be explained to her, gently, that wherever poetry is celebrated in public here, Seamus Heaney tries to respect it by simply being there. She found this a novel concept. In our time, we've argued constantly about Irish identity. How does the nation fit with the island? How does the island fit with the nation? And something which has always bothered me is the extent to which so many people in the Republic who took positions either way on Northern Ireland had no knowledge, no concept of it. And that's something almost without our realizing it that Seamus Heaney has done. He has expanded our imaginative landscape to include the North. Many people in the Republic know and care more about Northern Ireland through the world of Heaney's poems than they ever would through the narrow focus of taught history or political debate. Much of the small farm life that was lived at Mossbawn or Anahorish would be familiar to those of us who come from a country background down here, but maybe not so much the rotting flax dam or the orange drums or the visiting Presbyterian neighbour waiting shyly outside until the rosary is finished. Now the countryside around Balahi is as much part of our national imagination as is Patrick Kavanagh's Monaghan, or Yeats's Sligo, or Kate O'Brien's Limerick, or Frank O'Connor's Cork. But the last and most important thing that Seamus Heaney has done in our time is his championing of poetry as something which belongs to us all but also something which gives us strength and courage and hope where there would seem to be none. I swore when I escaped from university, and indeed it was here, and when I escaped from the stodgy ideological suet pudding dictates of F.R. Leavis that I would never ever again read a book of literary criticism. Until, that is, I started to read Seamus Heaney's pieces, and I saw the difference that it makes when somebody writes to borrow a phrase of, of his out of the marvelous. And, the write, and writing, as he did about Elizabeth Bishop in his Oxford lecture series, The Redress of Poetry, he says, she does continually manage to advance poetry 
beyond the point where it has been helping us to enjoy life to that even more profoundly verifying point where it helps us also to endure it. And this surely is the power of great poetry, its ability to help us face the often terrible mystery which is life and loss, its ability to hold in one hand, in one poem, life's ambiguities, its ability to help us live with the fact that there are no easy answers. So tonight, celebrating Heaney's time and our time, let's be grateful for the work, grateful for the lived life, grateful for the man. Would you please welcome Seamus Heaney. It's a great honour to be here, to be opening the Dublin Writers' Festival in this magnificent hall. And great pleasure and privilege and honour to be introduced by Olivia. We have all learned to trust Olivia's account of things over the years. I have relied on her judgment over the years. And it would be very wrong to start, stop relying on it at this point, I suppose. <laughs> so. I rejoice in the terms of praise and the high, the high remarks that were made by Olivia. It's a big hall, and uh, the, the poems I thought to be read here <clears throat> should be able to march out to the back of the hall and back up again to the other back, where we have an audience too, I realize. So, I thought I'd begin with uh, a poem about a poetry reading in a hall. It's uh, from a translation I did of Beowulf, which ten years ago it was published. And it's near the beginning of the epic poem, where the people in the hall are in the condition that we are in this evening to some extent. They are here, they are in the hall to attend, to listen, to the song of the poet, but they are surrounded by a world that is menacing and, uh, and implicit with evil and danger. And we, in our situation in this country at the minute, are probably feeling that we should be attending conscience-wise to deeper, more distressful realities. But there is nothing, just as there was nothing escapist about the people in, in Beowulf, in, in the hall, in Hrothgar's hall, attending to the minstrel, fortifying their, self, their inwardness, getting a kind of, uh, uh, allowing the, as Wallace Stevens says, the imagination, the strength to press back against the pressure of reality. I think that we are entitled to rejoice in our listening, not only to Beowulf, but whatever else can be mustered this evening. So this is from the opening of the Beowulf when the minstrel sings in the hall. And the people in the hall are menaced by Grendel outside, the demon. 
Then a powerful demon, a prowler through the dark, nursed a hard grievance. It harrowed him to hear the din of the loud banquet every day in the hall, the harp being struck and the clear song of a skilled poet telling with mastery of man's beginnings, how the Almighty had made the earth a gleaming plain girdled with waters. In his splendor, he set the sun and the moon to be earth's lamplight, lanterns for men, and he filled the broad lap of the world with branches and leaves and quickened life in every other thing that moved. So times were pleasant for the people there, until finally one, a fiend out of hell, began to work his evil in the world. Now read on, it's still available. <laughs> in other words, poetry doesn't have to address the circumambient dangers or gloom in order to take account of them. The main thing is that you and I and the poet are aware of what's called for and what's out there. My great hero, Czesław Miłosz, the Lithuanian-born Polish-speaking poet, said, poetry below a certain level of awareness is not good poetry. So it's a question of awareness that shapes our poetry, even if poetry does not deal directly with topical matters or political topics. The poem I'll read was the first one of my own was the first poem in a book called North. And Olivia moved me and by that mention of our times together throughout troubled history uh, the last century. Uh, a book called North came out in 1975. It had a lot of gloomy poems in it. The Scottish, merry Scottish, uh, witty, sardonic poet, Norman McCaig once said to me, after he read North, he said, I hate gloomy, ambitious poetry, he said. <laughs> it certainly was gloomy. I don't think it was that ambitious. It just tried to be as good as it tried to be. Well, maybe that's ambitious. Anyway, the first poem in the book had nothing to do with the troubles. It was in Arcadia, if you like, in the Moss Bon kitchen where I came to consciousness. It was called Moss Bon Sunlight. And on a sunlit day like today, it seems perfectly in order to start with it. Moss Bon, sunlight. There was a sunlit absence. The helmeted pump in the yard heated its iron. Water honeyed in the slung bucket. And the sun stood like a griddle cooling against the wall of each long afternoon. So, her hand scuffled over the bakeboard. The reddening stove sent its plaque of heat against her, where she stood in a flowery apron by the window. Now she dusts the board with a goose's wing, now sits broad-lapped and white with measling shins, broad-lapped with whitened nails and measling shins. Here is a space again, the scone rising to the tick of two clocks. And here is love, like a tinsmith scoop, sunk past its gleam in the meal bin. This poem is called Oysters. It was written in uh, 1976. 
at a time when the troubles were very severely a shadow over all our lives, and especially, I suppose, people who were born in the North and feeling answerable to it, if not for it. We went with poets from the Kilkenny Festival, from a reading there, to Morans of the Weir in County Galway, enjoyed ourselves immensely, ate oysters, and uh, I thought this is a magnificent life. At the same time, we were shadowed by all that was up there. So the poem is in that uh, halfway house between freedom and uh, obligation to what happens. Oysters. Our shells clacked on the plates. My tongue was a filling estuary. My palate hung with starlight. As I tasted the salty Pleiades, Orion dipped his foot into the water. Alive and violated, they lay on their beds of ice, bivalves, the split bulb and philandering sigh of ocean, millions of them ripped and shucked and scattered. We had driven to that coast through flowers and limestone, and there we were, toasting friendship, laying down a perfect memory in the cool of thatch and crockery. Over the Alps, packed deep in hay and snow, the Romans hauled their oysters south to Rome. I saw damp panniers disgorge the frond-lipped, brine-stung glut of privilege, and was angry that my trust could not repose in the clear light, like poetry or freedom, leaning in from sea. I ate the day deliberately, that its tang might quicken me all into verb, pure verb. If there's ever any place for pure verb, it's a concert hall. Music is very little known, I think. It's verb and singing also. And uh, Olivia made mention of our good friend, David Hammond, whom we lost during this year. During the Troubles, David, who had been a great singer and a great lord of misrule and uh, merriment and evenings, and the, the social life and the merriment went out of life to a large extent in Belfast. And then one time in the mid-70s, we were out in, again, West Donegal and uh, retrieved through the help of <coughs> either Powers or Paddy or Bushmills, whatever, whatever part of Ireland you want to opt for in that area, we retrieved the pleasure of music and singing. And this poem is called The Singer's House. It's about that house that David owned on the west of Donegal, but more so about the spirit of resistance and the spirit of fortification and the spirit of transcendence that singing and music entails, even in the bleakest of circumstances. So, The Singer's House. There's a reference to Carrickfergus, which had salt mines, of course, until in the 40s, 50s. When they said Carrickfergus, I could hear the salty... Sorry, I beg your pardon, I'm very nervous here. When they said Carrickfergus, I could hear the frosty echo of salt miners' picks. I imagined it 
chambered and glinting, a township built of light. What do we say any more to conjure the salt of our earth? So much comes and is gone that should be crystal and kept, and amicable weathers that bring up the grain of things, their tying of season and store, are all the packing we'll get. So I say to myself, Quibara, and its music hits off the place like water hitting off granite. I see the glittering sound framed in your window, knives and forks set on oilcloth, and the seals' heads suddenly outlined, scanning everything. People here used to believe that drowned souls lived in the seals. At spring tides, they might change shape. They loved music and swam in for a singer who might stand at the end of summer in the mouth of a whitewashed turf shed, his shoulder to the jam, his song a rowboat far out in evening. When I came here first, you were always singing, a hint of the clip of the pick in your winnowing climb and attack. Raise it again, man. We still believe what we hear. This is called the harvest bow. Again, it's a poem of peace in a time of unpeace. My father used to weave these uh, or plait little harvest bows out of the wheat straw in the harvest time and wore them, very beautiful. They were kind of related to corn dollies in England and probably right back to Indo-European harvest festivals where the spirit of the corn or the kalyak was kept again cornered in the loops of the harvest bow. Anyway, uh, he used to make them and uh, I asked him to make one for me in my 30s and I wore it on my lapel and I went into Dublin and I realized how folksy I looked. <laughs> and even though I felt I had every right to this true, ancient, and beautiful emblem. I thought, no, no, I can't do that. <laughs> so I pinned it up in the dresser, and this, this poem eventually came out of it. My father was a great man for the game cocks, very incorrect, but there it was. The Harvest Bow. As you plaited the harvest bow, you implicated the mellowed silence in you in wheat that does not rust but brightens as it tightens twist by twist into a knowable corona, a throwaway love knot of straw. Hands that aged round ash plants and cane sticks and lapped the spurs in a lifetime of game cocks harked to their gift and worked with fine intent until your fingers moved somnambulant. I tell and finger it like braille, gleaning the unsaid off the palpable. And if I spy into its golden loops, I see us walk between the railway slopes into an evening of long grass and midges, blue smoke straight up, old beds and ploughs and hedges, an auction notice on an outhouse wall. You with the harvest bow in your lapel, me with the fishing rod, already homesick for the big lift of these evenings as your stick whacking the tips off weeds and bushes, beats out of time and beats, but flushes nothing. 
at original townland, still tongue-tied in the straw tied by your hand. The end of art is peace, could be the motto of this frail device that I have pinned up on our deal dresser like a drawn snare, slipped lately by the spirit of the corn, yet burnished by its passage and still warm. One of the things that gave me great pleasure in the course of these last few months when I have been 70 many, many times <laughs> uh, was the, I mean, many honorific things happened, but the attention and, uh, and uh, compliments of other poets meant a lot to me. And there was one poet uh, who talked about the following poems called Two Lorries, most unromantic title, but uh, uh, I, I thought I would read it uh, because I, I believed in the poem again myself when I heard it praised by another poet. It, it's not that I didn't disbelieve in it, I assure you, but, uh, but there is something from the guild to get the, to get the laying on of hands from a member of the guild is very important. This was written after uh, the center of Marafelt, County Derry, was blown up in a big bomb. The uh, bus station was blown up and the whole center was blown out of the town. Uh, so that's one of the lorries in the, the second lorry in the pub is the lorry that delivered that proxy bomb. The first lorry is an earlier one, the 1940s. So I don't think it, it, it is a, a, an intricate form, it's called the Sestina. It's six stanzas with three lines at the end and the six stanzas have six lines and the six words that end the first line are repeated in all the other stanzas and so on and so forth. You'll not notice it all being well, but it's there, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, you may, four or three. Sorry. I carefully put this together, but... Two lorries. It's raining on black coal and warm wet ashes. There are tire marks in the yard. Agnew's old lorry with all his cribs down. And Agnew's old lorry has all his cribs down. And Agnew the coal man with his Belfast accent is sweet talking my mother. Would you ever go to a film in Mara Felt? But it's raining and he still has half the load to deliver further on. This time the load our coal came from was silk black, so the ashes will be the silkiest white. The Marafelt via Tomb Bridge bus goes by. The half-stripped lorry with its emptied folded coal bags moves my mother. The tasty ways of a leather apron coal man. And films too. The conceit of a coal man. She goes back in and gets out the black lead and emery paper, this 1940s mother, all business round her stove, half wiping ashes with a backhand from her cheek as the bolted lorry gets revved and turned and heads for Marafelt and the last delivery. Oh, Marafelt. Oh, dream of red plush and a city coal man as time fasts forwards and a different lorry groans into shot up Broad Street with a payload that will blow the bus station to dust and ashes. After that happened, 
I had a vision of my mother, a revenant on the bench where I would meet her in that cold-floored waiting room in Marafelt, her shopping bags full up with shoveled ashes. Death walked out past her like a dust-faced coal man, refolding body bags, plying his load, empty upon empty, in a flurry of moats and engine revs. But which lorry was it now? Yogag News, or that other, heavier, deadlier one, set to explode in a time beyond her time in Marafelt. So tally bags and sweet tark, tally bags and sweet talk darkness, Coleman. Listen to the rain spit in new ashes as you heft a load of dust that was Marafelt and reappear from your lorry as my mother's dreamboat, Coleman, filmed in silk-white ashes. Ghosts, ashes, faces forming, people coming up out of the past, fading back. A book called Station Island that came out in 1984 had all that. People who were killed in the Troubles appearing like ghosts appear in uh, Dante's Inferno. And then the following, a book later on was called Seeing Things. That, and it's something I really like, if possible, in a poem to get something that is absolutely credible in its solid presence, and at the same time has a slight edge of strangeness, of hallucination about it. And that's why I like the term seeing things with its suggestion of hallucination at the same time, the actual thing being seen. One of the times when that, one of the times I knew that happened to me was very early on, on an afternoon when something uh, some strange thing happened, to quote Kavanagh. My father almost drowned in the Myola River, uh, but struggled out of it. So that explains the word, my undrowned father, in the first line of this poem. It's section three of a poem called Seeing Things. I like it because of the story it tells and because of the strangeness. And uh, so here it is, just a little story. Seeing Things, part three. Once upon a time, my undrowned father walked into our yard. He had gone to spray potatoes on a in a field on the riverbank and wouldn't bring me with him. The horse sprayer was too big and newfangled. Bluestone might burn me in the eyes, the horse was fresh, I might scare the horse, and so on. I threw stones at a bird on the shed roof as much for the clatter of the stones as anything. But when he came back, I was inside the house and saw him out the window, scatter-eyed and strange, daunted, without his hat, his step unguided, his ghosthood imminent. When he was turning on the riverbank, the horse had rusted and reared up and pitched cart and sprayer and everything off balance. So the whole rig went over into a steep whirlpool. Hoofs, chains, shafts, cartwheels, barrel and tackle, all tumbling off the world. And the hat already merrily swept along on the quieter reaches. That afternoon, I saw him face to face. He came to me with his damp footprints out of the river. And there was nothing between us there that might not happily still be 
ever after. Um, the older I get, the older we all get, we're more in step with our ghosts, the people we have known. I think you begin life, certainly my generation began life, imagining meeting the dead up there or down there in the other world. But the older you get, the other world is inside your head and the presences are there. And that is the ghost life. The ghost life comes up. This poem is called uh, The Wood Road. And it's, it's being in step with ghosts, if you like. Uh, Heraclitus talked about none of us being able to step into the same river twice. There's a kind of Herac Heraclitian quality about this poem. It's called The Wood Road. It's not a stream, it's a road. The Wood Road in County Derry. Resurfaced, never widened. The gr this was written recently, and it just goes back over all we've been through in the last uh, 40, 50, 60 years. Resurfaced, never widened. The, gra the verges grassy as when Bill Pickering lay with his gun under the summer hedge, night watchy in uniform, special militia man. Moonlight on rifle barrels, on the windscreen of a van road blocking the road, the rest of his staunch patrol in profile, sentry loyal, harassing Mulholland'stown. Or me in broad daylight on, on the top of a cartload of turf built neat and tight, looked up to, looking down, allowed the reins like an adult as the old cart rocked and rollicked. Then that August day I stepped it to the hunger striker's wake across a silent yard, in past a watching crowd, to where the guarded corpse and a guard of honour stared. Or the stain at the end of the lane, where the child on her bike was hit by a speed merchant from nowhere, hard rounding the corner, a back wheel spinning in sunshine, a headlamp in smithereens. Resurfaced, never widened, the wood road as is and was stepped, stepped into, out of, here and now and then, the milk churn deck and the sign for the bus stop overgrown. Along the, wolf, along the wood road, there came the procession that is commemorated in the following poem. It's called The Lift, and uh, it uh, concerns a funeral where a most, a traditional funeral where something most untraditional happened at the end. But you know, the uh, uh, people step in to take, to take the lifts at the coffin. Um, so this, this, uh, this is about a lift that happened at my sister's funeral. Uh, you can't arrange total silence, even for a funeral in the north, up until quite recently, there would always be a helicopter invigilating what was going on downstairs, so to speak. So anyway, the lift. A first green braird, the hawthorn half in leaf, 
Her funeral filled the road and could have stepped from some old photograph of a Breton pardon, remote familiar women and men in caps walking four abreast, soon falling quiet. Then came the throttle and articulated whops of a helicopter crossing, and afterwards awareness of the sound of our own footsteps, of open air, and the life behind those words, open and air. I remembered her aghast, fetal, shaking, sweating, shrunk, wet-haired, a beaten breath, a misting mask, the flash of one wild glance, like ghost surveillance from behind the gleam of helicopter glass. A lifetime, then the death time. Reticence keeping us together when together, all declaration deemed outspokenness. Favourite aunt, good sister, faithful daughter, delicate since childhood, tough alloy of disapproval, kindness and hauteur. She took the risk at last of certain joys, her bird table and jubilating birds, the fashion in her wardrobe and her tall boy. Whether in the end would say or say, reprise of griefs in summer's clearest mornings, children's deaths in snowdrops and the May, whole requiems at the sight of plants and gardens. They bore her lightly on the bier. Four women, four friends, she would have called them girls, stepped in and claimed the final lift beneath the hawthorn. Maybe something slightly lighter. For a long time, and I wouldn't say it won't ever happen again, but for a long time, <clears throat> I always began readings with the first poem in my first book called Digging. It's all about digging with a spade, my father and grandfather, and then me digging with a pen and so on. I was delighted uh, later on, after, years later, to discover a poem by Owen Roe Sulawine about a spade. The second book of mine was called Door into the Dark. It was about a forge. This is about uh, a man asking a blacksmith to forge him a spade. So I thought it certainly had to be translated by me. So this is Poet to Blacksmith by Owen Roe Sulawine uh, to his friend Seamus McGarrell to, to forge him a spade. I just suddenly realize I've got uh, an audience up here too. If I, I'll turn my back on you for a minute. <laughs> well, how do, can you hear me okay without the... Poet to blacksmith. Seamus, make me a sidearm to take on the earth, a suitable, tool, a suitable tool for digging and grubbing the ground, lightsome and pleasant to lean on or cut with or lift, tastily finished and trim and right for the hand. No trace of the hammer to show on the sheen of the blade, the thing to have purchased in spring and to be fit for the strain, the shaft to be socketed in, dead true and dead straight and I'll work with the gang till I drop and never complain. The plate in the edge of it not to be wrinkly or crooked. I see it well shaped from the anvil and sharp from the file. The grain of the wood and the line of the shaft nicely fitted. And best thing of all, the ring of it, sweet as a bell. 
I don't know, could you hear that at all yourselves? <laughs> could, could you hear it up there? All right. All right. <laughs> That sister uh, I re read about in the lift, uh, Mary and I went up to her house on New Year's Eve 1999. Oh, wait a minute, what was it? Yeah, that was the year, yeah. The 31st of December 1999, anyway, to, to bring in the millennium with her. And we ended up sitting watching TV <laughs> while an epic occurrence was going on in that forge that is mentioned in Door Into the Dark. Uh, blacksmith Barney Devlin, our local blacksmith, good friend, had uh, invented a great ritual to, to summon in the millennium. Uh, so this poem is called Midnight Anvil. It's, it's a set of five little stanzas about, uh, about, well, first of all, about what Barney did at midnight to greet the new millennium, and then a few uh, thoughts about it. References to other poems like uh, George Herbert's poem, Church Bells Beyond the Stars Heard. There's a quotation from Herbert from his poem called Prayer. And then there's a quotation from a medieval poem about blacksmiths. And there's a quotation from the poem I just read. Anyway, T.S. Eliot once said about the wasteland that he, he was asked once, that, did he ever write anything when he was drunk? And he said, yes, I did write one poem, but it was full of quotations, he said. so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... Well, Elliot actually was fond of a, a shot of bourbon, I know that. Uh, he had a special bourbon glass. And uh, when the latter, latter years, when he came in, there were different, there were kind of little graduation marks on it, different marks on the ladder, first rung, second rung, third rung, and apparently Valerie would say to him when he came home, which rung, Tom? <laughs> so... So he may have written something when he was drunk, who knows. Anyway, Midnight Anvil. <clears throat> if I wasn't there when Barney Devlin hammered the Midnight Anvil, I can still hear it. Twelve blows struck for the millennium. That's how he hammered it in. Twelve midnight blows. His nephew heard it in Edmonton, Alberta. The cellular phone held high as a horse's ear. Barney smiling to himself. Afterwards, I thought, church bells beyond the stars heard. And then imagine Barney putting it to me. He'll maybe write a poem. What I'll do instead is quote those water-burning medieval smiths. Huff, puff, lust, bus, such noise on nights heard no one never. And Owen Rua asking Seamus McGarrett to forge him a spade, sharp, well-shaped from the anvil, and ringing sweet as a bell. A medieval word for a blacksmith, one of the medieval poetic terms for a blacksmith was a water burner, because they put the, the hot iron into the water. Uh, I was urged by a couple of three good friends today to read these poems, and I said, no, no, everybody's heard them. I've read them too often. I said, no, no, read them. So these are two poems I wrote when my mother died called, from a sequence called Clearances, and uh, I am reading them as a special request. I like them myself, but I have read them often before. 
In fact, I think I know them by heart, so we'll try that. When all the others were away at Mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron. Cold comfort set between us, things to share, gleaming in a bucket of clean water, and again let fall. Little pleasant splashes from each other's work would bring us to our senses. So, when the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding, and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath in mine, her fluent dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. This is about uh, folding sheets and afterwards I discovered that there are two or three poems by other poets about folding sheets. One of them compares it to a, a gavotte, an Elizabethan dance coming and going. Uh, I have a sterner pulling image. Anyway. The cool that came off sheets just off the line made me think the damp must still be in them. But when I took my corners of the linen and pulled against her, first straight down the hem and then diagonally, then flapped and shook the fabric like a sail in a crosswind, it made a dried out undulating thwack. So we'd stretch and fold and end up hand to hand for a split second, as if nothing had happened, for nothing had, that had not always happened beforehand, day by day, just touch and go, coming close again by holding back, in moves where I was X and she was O, inscribed in sheets she'd sewn from ripped out flour sacks. Coming close again by holding back is quite the Irish amorous way, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and this poem is called The Skunk. It involves writing love letters at a distance of about 6,000 miles. It's set in California, and uh, I think it's, it's explanatory or self-explanatory. The Skunk. Up, black, striped and damasked, like the chasuble at a funeral mass, the skunk's tail paraded the skunk. And night after night, I expected her like a visitor. The refrigerator whinnied into silence. My desk light softened beyond the veranda. Small oranges loomed in the orange tree. I began to be tense as a voyeur. After 11 years, I was composing love letters again, broaching the word wife like a stored cask, as if its slender vowel had mutated into the night earth and air of California. The beautiful, useless tang of eucalyptus spelt your absence. The aftermath of a mouthful of wine was like inhaling you off a cool pillow. And there she was, the intent and glamorous, ordinary, mysterious skunk, mythologized, demythologized, stuffing the boards five feet beyond me. It all came back to me last night, stirred by the sootfall of your things at bedtime. Your head down, tail up, 
hunt in a bottom drawer with a black plunge line nightdress. <laughs> yeah. This is called Tate's Avenue. Uh, and it's, a, again, it's about an, a romantic scene in an unromantic setting. Tate's Avenue isn't, uh, uh, it's not, um, it's not the avenue of love anyway, I'll tell you that. But, but for a moment it was. This could be called uh, four rugs, or, or, or rather three, three different uh, rugs for spreading out on the seashore or at a picnic or at the back of a, at the back of a house on Tate's Avenue on a sunlit summer day when the bins were, when I use the word high, I just mean the whiff of the bins rather than the altitude of them. Anyway, Tate's Avenue. Not the brown and fawn car rug, that first one spread on sand by the sea, but breathing land breaths, its vestal folds unfolded, its comfort zone edged with a fringe of sepia-colored wool tails. Not the one scraggy with crusts and eggshells and olive stones and cheese and slammy rinds laid out by the torrents of the Guadalavir where we got drunk before the Corrida. Instead, again, it's locked park, Sunday, Belfast, a walled backyard, the dust bins high and silent as a page is turned, a finger twirls warm hair and nothing gives on the rug or the ground beneath it. I lay at my length and felt the lumpy earth, keen-sensed more than ever through discomfort, but never shifted off the plaid square once. When we moved, I had your measure and you had mine. Uh, the shyness of the word love, which I think is a, not a bad thing to be shy of, you want to be in earnest when you come out with it. <laughs> this is called A Call. And uh, it's, it, it harks back to the medieval uh, morality play, Every Man, where every man is called on a long journey by death. Of course, death comes and say, every man, come, come, you, I need you. And he says, oh, I have a wedding to go to today. No, 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 sorry. You know, I've got to do all the excuses, no way. The call comes. So the, phrase, the title is a call, and it's harking back to that call, but it's also about a phone call, and uh, that's it. Hold on, she said. I'll just run out and get him. The weather here is so good, he took the chance to do a bit of weeding. So I saw him down on his hands and knees beside the leak rig, touching, inspecting, separating one stock from the other, gently pulling up everything not tapered, frail and leafless, pleased to feel each little weed root break, but rueful also. Then found myself listening to the amplified grave ticking of hall clocks, where the phone lay unattended in a calm of mirror glass and sunstruck pendulums and found myself then thinking, 
If it were nowadays, this is how death would summon every man. Next thing he spoke, and I nearly said I loved him. One false move and... This actually ends up being set beside a river whose name is not mentioned, but it is the river of love, as it were. The poem is called St. Kevin and the Blackbird. Story and a little meditation on the story. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside his cell, but the cell is narrow. So one turned-up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam, when a blackbird lands and lays in it and settles down to nest. Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked neat head and claws, and finding himself linked into the network of eternal life is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch out in the sun and rain for weeks, until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin. Which is he? Self-forgetful or in agony all the time, from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms? Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? Alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labor and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the riverbank, forgotten the river's name. The next poem is called Miracle. It was written after uh, I had a, an episode, as they say, a few years ago. And um, one of the things when I was in the hospital after the stroke, which mercifully I, mercifully I, I recovered from, one of the, piece, the stories that I kept thinking of was of the man in the scriptures, sick of the palsy, who is carried in by his friends to where Christ is healing the sick, and there's too big a crowd. There's a gang, big crowd around the around the Christ, and they have to take him up to the top of one of these uh, Jerusalem houses in Jerusalem. And if it is in Jerusalem, I've forgotten which. Maybe it's Bethany, but one of these Middle Eastern houses. They were able to take off the slates and lower the man down for healing. And uh, I realised after my own experience that, of course, the central healing figure of Christ is all important, but also central to the story are the people who, don't, who aren't get, don't get much mention, the people who carried him in, uh, part of the miracle. Uh, friends, uh, the, again, part of, the, part of the love life, that is, we depend upon. So this is called miracle.
It's short. And it goes like this. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb. They ache and stoop deep locked in their backs. The stretcher handles slippery with sweat. And no let up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the burn of the paid out ropes to cool, their slight lightheadedness and incredulity to pass, those ones who have known him all along. This is called uh, Chanson d'Aventure, French meaning as, as, as a kind of a camolio, basically. It's the song that begins, as I roamed out on a May morning or a June morning, something happened to me. Uh, this is about a morning that something had happened to me that I wasn't expecting. Uh, the same morning uh, that, uh, that uh, is commemorated in, the, in that poem. This is called Chanson d'Aventure, and uh, it has a little epigraph from John Donne's poem, The Ecstasy, where the two lovers are sitting, watching each other, entranced with each other. Their souls leave the bodies, and their souls communicate up there, and their bodies aren't uh, involved until Don says, of course, at the end, look, our souls can communicate, our bodies can communicate too. Come on, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but in a paralytic, paralyzed situation in an ambulance, there's no doing of it at all. <laughs> Chanson d'Aventure. To our bodies turn we then, that so weak men on love revealed may look. Love mysteries in souls do grow, and yet the body is his book, says Don. Strapped on, wheeled out, fork lifted, locked in position for the drive, bone shaken, bumped at speed, the nurse a passenger in front, you ensconced in her vacated corner seat, me flat on my back, our postures all the journey still the same. Everything and nothing spoken, her eye beams threaded laser fast. No transport ever like it until then, in the sunlit cold of a Sunday morning ambulance, when we might, oh my love, have quoted done on love on hold, body and soul apart. Apart. The very word is like a bell that the sexton Malachi Boyle outrolled in illo tempore in Balachi or the one I told in Derry in my turn as college bellman, the hall of it's there still in the heel of my once capable soft hand, hand that I could not feel or lift or lag in yours throughout that journey when it lay flop heavy as a bell pull. And we drove at speed through Dunglow, Dunglone and Church Hill, our gaze ecstatic and bisected by a hooked up drip feed to the cannula. The ch there's a famous uh, statue of a charioteer at Delphi whose hand is cut off. 
The charioteer at Delphi holds his own, his six horses and chariot gone, his left hand lopped from a wrist protruding like an open spout, bronze reins lapped in his right, his gaze ahead empty as the space where the team should be, his eyes front, straight back, posture like my own, doing physio in the corridor, holding on as if once more I'd found myself in step between two shafts, another's hand on mine, each slither of the share, each stone it hit, registered like a pulse in the timbered grips. Just a couple more. A little elegiac, a blackbird of Glanmore, this is called. Uh, there's a blackbird in Loch, of Loch, Belfast Loch, one of the very first poems in the Irish tradition. There's the, bel, the blackbird of Derry Kern. There's the blackbird everywhere in Irish literature, as you look. So uh, this is the one in Glanmore, and down in County Wicklow. It goes, the poem harks back to a poem of mine called uh, midterm break about a young brother who lost his uh, life in an accident years ago and to something an old neighbour said after that accident. And then I'll do one more after that. The Blackbird of Gladmore. This actually uses the word love about a blackbird, so there's nothing, nothing uh, too extravagant there, I hope. On the grass when I arrive, filling the stillness with life, but ready to scare off at the very first wrong move, in the ivy when I leave. It's you, blackbird, I love. <clears throat> I park, pause, take heed, breathe, just breathe and sit, and lines I once translated come back. I want a way to the house of death, to my father under the low clay roof. And I think of one gone to him, a little stillness dancer, haunter son, lost brother, <clears throat> cavorting through the yard, so glad to see me home, my homesick first term over. And think of a neighbor's words long after the accident. Yon bird of the shed roof, up on the ridge for weeks, I said nothing at the time, but I never liked yon bird. The automatic lock clunks shut. The blackbird's panic is short-lived. For a second, I have a bird's eye view of myself, a shadow on raked gravel in front of my house of life. Hedgehog, I am absolute for you. Your ready talk back. Your each standoffish comeback. Your picky, nervy gold beak on the grass when I arrive, in the ivy when I leave. <clears throat> and just P.S. postscript, a poem uh, just has a postscript. I'm going to try to get myself placed between you all for the postscript. <clears throat> well, it's here somewhere. Thank you very much for listening. So. Tently, it's quiet for everything. And sometime make the time to drive out west 
into County Clare along the flaggy shore in September or October, when the wind and the light are working off each other, so that the ocean on one side is wild with foam and glitter, and inland among stones the surface of a slate-grey lake is lit by the earth-lightening of a flock of swans, their feathers roughed and ruffling, white on white, their fully grown, headstrong-looking heads tucked or cresting or busy underwater. Useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are neither here nor there. A hurry through which known and strange things pass, as big soft buffetings come at the car sideways and catch the heart off guard and blow it open. Thank you very much. Excuse me. I had a translation from the Irish I meant to read, so I'll do it for an encore. Is that... <laughs> okay. If I can find it. Is that all right? Can I read another poem now? A little one. You read another poem right yeah. now. Yeah. I'll hold it now. I take okay. the flowers off. Sorry. I hope it's here. I can't find it. <laughs> That's fine. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our poet laureate, our weaver of words, our dreamer of dreams. First of all, can I thank him for sharing so much of his wonderful talent with all of us in so many different ways. In 1939, the first woman became Lord Mayor of Dublin. They had no title for her, so the, the female Lord Mayor of Dublin is always the Lord Mayor of Dublin, and that spouse is always called the Lady Mayoress of Dublin. <laughs> Kathleen Clark was the Lord Mayor of Dublin in 1939. Her husband had fought in the 1916 Rising, and so she refused to wear the symbol of William of Orange. Twenty years later, a child was born in Donegal at Moss Side, shared many of the memories that are shared with you by Seamus in many of his wonderful works. And this year, a call came to the mansion house to say that the buttermilk man wanted to come to the mansion house because he remembered a child that was born in Moss Side 
a child of a Donegal mother and a Kerry father who is now the Lord Mayor of Dublin. So not having had anybody in the 1916 rising of the GPO, at least I can claim some links to Seamus Heaney. <laughs> but much more importantly, at the time of Seamus's birthday, at a time of great turbulence here for us in Dublin, at a time when we're facing huge challenges, both economically and socially, Seamus said some words which I found very, very important and which I've gone back to on many times since. Seamus, I'm sure you remember them. But he gave us a little bit of advice. He said, he said we should keep our feet on the ground to signify that nothing is beneath us, but we should also lift our eyes to say nothing is beyond us. In the next while, while you're facing turbulence, while you're making decisions for our city and our country, remember the advice that Seamus gave you. 1939 also saw the death of W.B. Yeats, the passing of a great mantle from one great Irish poet to another. So this evening, on behalf of the Writers' Festival, on behalf of all of you, I want to present Seamus with a final copy of W.B. Yeats' poems, a limited edition, a symbol of the passing of one great torch to another great torch, to light a nation, to show a nation its way, to be our voice, sometimes in the darkness, sometimes in the light, but always being our voice and carrying on that great mantle. This week we celebrate the Writers' Festival in Dublin. We are a nation of poets and playwrights. Some of us take the time to write the book, others of us dream of writing the book. We all have the music of the poet somewhere in our head, but we don't always get it down on paper. This evening we're playing tribute to somebody who always gets it down on paper. Ladies and gentlemen, Seamus Heaney. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.